So you know the, the, the whole of the gospel is, is, is a story. It's a great story. And it's an ongoing story. And even tonight, the story is still unfolding. Souls are being added to the kingdom. The work of Christ is happening in the earth. And if I were to ask tonight to, for, for you to come up with a single um, theme, an overwhelming theme of the gospel, and ask everybody to come up with a single thing, we'd probably get several answers. And some would say, well, it's the glory of God. And you're absolutely correct. And some would say, it's the love of God. You're also correct. And some would say, it, well, it's the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. And that's absolutely correct. But I want to present to you tonight all of these things line up behind an overwhelming theme of all of the gospel, and that is the theme of redemption. The gospel is a story from the very beginning until right now. The gospel is a story of redemption. And that's what we're going to focus on tonight. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter. Are you turning there? We'll pray. Lord, we love you. We just thank you for the time we have to come together here tonight. Bless the word here. Help me to speak it clearly and plainly and help the people to understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Peter chapter 1 will be in verse, uh, start with verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He was indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And so tonight, you know, our the requirement that we have a Redeemer goes back to the very beginning of time. When in the garden, Genesis 3, when sin enters, from that time forward, we've been in need of a Redeemer. And God provided a covering there in Genesis 3, albeit a temporary covering with the animal skins that we know of, but He also promised a future Redeemer, an eternal Redeemer that would come and that would crush the head of the serpent and would redeem us to himself for all of eternity. And we, we understand that's Jesus. And throughout the Bible, we continually see God's faithfulness to redeem his people. We see the patience and long-suffering of God to, that brings rescue and redemption, not only to the righteous, but to those who continually and repeatedly reject God. And we know that God is drawn to the weak and the destitute and the heartbroken. Those that our society would cast to one side and just say, fend for yourselves. That's who God is drawn to, and he brings rescue and redemption and restoration to them every time. <clears throat> and we see this throughout all of Scripture. In the Gospels, when we read of Christ's time on earth, we see that every situation that he enters, he brings redemption. So the whole of the Gospel tells us that the plan and purpose of God for your life and for my life is to redeem us to himself and Christ will redeem you. And that's the title of the sermon tonight. He will redeem you. Now, what does redemption, the word redeem in both the Old and the New Testament, it, this, it's, it's the exchanging of something for a price. 
It's used often in the context of redeeming a servant, a bond servant. And this would be somebody that had sold themselves into slavery so they could survive. Their family would come and redeem them, and by the paying of a price, they would buy their freedom. So redemption is a very transactional term. Something is given and something is received. And it applies to people in the Bible, also to property and to possessions. So there's three primary requirements, and these are laid out in Leviticus 25. But there's three primary requirements for a redeemer. The first is he must be a kinsman, a relative. The second, that he must be willing to redeem. This is not an obligation that's forced onto somebody that doesn't want to take it, but he must be willing to redeem. And finally, the redeemer must be able to pay the price. Those are the three requirements. Now, this seems, may seem kind of technical, but you'll see the importance of these requirements as we go through the primary story that we're going to look at tonight, which is Ruth, and also an understanding that our ultimate redeemer is Jesus. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth. We'll go through it and stop at a few scriptures along the way. But Ruth occurs during a very dark part of Israel's history. This is a time known as Judges. This is a somewhere between a three and a four hundred year period. And the Bible says during this time there was no king in Israel. And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And like it always does, this brought disaster to the people of God. They would fall into idolatry. God would punish them by sending foreign oppressors into the land. They would cry out for God to redeem them and rescue them, and He would. He would send judges who were often um, military leaders that would come and defeat these foreign people um, that have brought Israel under bondage. And so this is a repeating cycle, and, but we see here the love and the long-suffering of God after He continually deals with and redeems His people, and He does not ever forget His covenant with the people of Israel. So the story of Ruth picks up during a period of famine. And the Bible does not directly say that this particular famine that's in Judah, in Bethlehem, at that time, is the judgment of God. But there is a, a precept for famine to be the judgment of God. So it could be. And the story is about uh, the house of Elimelech. And Elimelech and his wife Naomi... And so the Bible says they sojourn in Moab. Now, Moab is a close-by um, pagan land, a pagan people. And there's this long history between the, the Israelites and the Moabites and their enemies. The Moabites are enemies. But Elimelech and his family go there. The word sojourn implies that it's only temporary, that they're there. And while they're, in, while they're there, Elimelech dies. Now, both of their sons marry Moabite women. And after a period of about 10 years, the Bible doesn't say they have any children, and we understand that they don't from the rest of the story. But after about 10 years, both sons die. And this all happens in the first five verses of the first chapter. So we see it's a dark opening. It's a dark time for Israel, and it's a dark situation that now the wife of Elimelech, Naomi, finds herself in. She is in a foreign pagan land. She's separated from everything she's ever known, everything that was ever familiar to her. Her husband has passed away, and now her two sons have also passed away. 
She's alone with her two daughters-in-law. So Naomi is not only grieved and heartbroken, but at this point, Naomi is utterly destitute. She's facing extreme poverty. There's no one to provide for her, and there is seemingly very little hope for any sort of a future. So here's what one scholar has to say about Jewish culture and Naomi's prospects for the future. In that culture, a woman's worth and security depended on family. Wage work essentially did not exist for a woman, and she could not cultivate land without male relatives, even if she were allowed to inherit it. She had to have sons, not daughters, because grown sons would support her if her husband died. A childless widow who was too old to remarry was both worthless and vulnerable. It's important to remember that starvation, prostitution, destitution, homelessness, and our abuse was most likely what a woman like Naomi had in store for her future. So this is a very dark place Naomi finds herself in. Naomi is absolutely at rock bottom. There's, it would be difficult to imagine things getting too much more difficult for Naomi. Now also, Naomi believes that these hardships that are afflicting her life are the outstretched hand of God against her. And there are a couple different reasons she could feel this way. We don't know all of her history with Elimelech. We don't know all that they were involved in. We don't know if they were involved in any idolatry, either in Judah or while they were in Moab. There are some that believe that Naomi believed that when she and Elimelech left Judah to go to Moab, escaping the famine, they were disobeying God. Judah was the land that God had given them to dwell in. So the Bible doesn't exactly tell us why Naomi thought that her hardships were the judgments of God, but we can see here some reasons why she could have thought that. So while she's there, she hears that the famine has lifted in Judah and decides to return. And here's where we see the first sign of providence, the hand of God. It says in verse 6, the Lord had visited his people. And this term visited is a reference to God being faithful to the covenant that he had made with Israel. And that he won't ever forget it. And he had come to his people and supplied their, what they were lacking, in this case, food. And so we see Naomi is acting in faith by going back to Judah. She has no guarantee of anything, but she doesn't develop some scheme to use her two daughters-in-law, which is all she has. She doesn't develop some scheme to try to use them for her own benefit. In fact, she tells them, it would be better for you to go back to your own families, go back to your own gods. And so Naomi goes back to God. She goes from the place that she is, she goes back to Judah in faith. She understands the goodness of God. She understands that this kindness that God has shown to his people in Judah is him being faithful to the covenant, and she wants to return to that. Now, one of her daughter-in-laws takes her advice, goes back to her own family, but Ruth joins herself to Naomi, pledges to stay. And there's this beautiful poetic passage of Scripture in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, 
Um, where Ruth says, you know, where you lodge, I will lodge, and your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. So Ruth says she will die where Naomi dies. This is not her home. So she is going away from her home and taking on Naomi's God. Now Ruth is totally de- denying herself here. And when we were singing that song, I give myself away, I couldn't help but think of what she's doing. So she's totally casting aside everything that would benefit her. Now, we're not sure of this, but she could have had a brighter future going back to her own family, finding another husband. But she didn't do that. She acts in faith and follows Naomi. So in chapter 2, they're back in uh, Bethlehem. We're quickly introduced to Boaz. And he's introduced as a relative and a person of great wealth. So that's two of the three qualities of a redeemer. And we find Ruth gleaning in Boaz's field. And if you don't know, gleaning was a custom but a a commandment of God to Jewish farmers that they would, a portion of their field would be left behind for the poor to come and to have provision. And so this was where Ruth was and she sees, uh, Boaz sees her there, asks about her and she finds favor in the sight of Boaz. So there's a lot of similarities between Boaz and Christ. We'll we'll see all of those. They were both from the tribe of Judah. They're both from Bethlehem. And as well, they both fulfill the law in terms of redemption. But there's even a greater similarity in how Boaz interacts with Ruth. Boaz does not merely fulfill the law by allowing her to glean in his field and by redeeming his relatives. But he purposefully shows kindness towards her. If you, if you look at chapter 2, starting at verse 10, it says, So she fell on her face, bowed to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice since I'm a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It's been fully reported to me all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people you don't know. So Boaz is recognizing the, the act of faith that Ruth has done also. And he's saying, The Lord repay you for your work. A full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. And then she said, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to me, though I am not like one of yours. Now Boaz said to her, Come here and eat of the bread, and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and passed parched grain, and gone down, and also, in verse 16, also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So there's a beautiful picture here of how Boaz very tenderly, very lovingly, and with great dignity provides for Ruth and for Naomi. We see in Boaz, of course, a type and a shadow of Jesus, not only in what he does, but in how he does it. There's no condemnation. There's no begrudgingly fulfilling the terms of the law. Just like when Christ comes to rescue us, he comes tenderly, and he seeks us out, and he finds us and draws us to himself, all for our good, all because he loves us. So Boaz pays the price 
And, through, and they follow the custom. They follow the letter of the law exactly. Naomi tells Ruth exactly what to do. Boaz accepts the proposition, follows the law. There's another redeemer in, in, in that's closer kin that has to say he will not do it before Boaz. They go through all of that. And Boaz ultimately pays the price. And Naomi and Ruth um, are redeemed out of poverty and restored into the family of God. Their future and their family line, the descendants of Elimelech, the whole house of Elimelech, is redeemed. And so what started as a very dark place, and Naomi had a very, very bleak future. This is how it ends. Her daughter-in-law, Ruth, marries Boaz. They have a son, Obed. Obed is the grandfather of King David, through the lineage where which Jesus will come. And so this terrible beginning and this terrible story and this seeming like there's not any hope for any future for Naomi turns into this wonderful, beautiful story of the redemption of God. And this is all a picture of our, the redemption that's available to us through Christ. As we read the accounts in the gospel, now we're shifting into the ministry of Jesus. As we read the accounts in the gospels, we see this theme continued of redemption. When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, the first thing he says is, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. God has promised a Redeemer. The prophets have written about a Redeemer. And now John says to Israel, This is Him. Here He is. Here's the Redeemer that's come. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He brought redemption into every situation that He entered. In Acts 10.38, it says that Jesus went about doing Good, and we see that in the, all the people that he healed, the m- miracles that he did. Every situation he went into, he brought good. And here's a quote from Charles Finney about Jesus doing good. It is implied that this was his business, the thing he had above all things else at heart. For this end he came into the world. He came to do good and not evil, to bless and not curse, to fill the world with peace, love, and happiness so far as lay within the range of his influence. The good of people was the great object that he sought. And to illustrate the redeeming nature and the redeeming quality of Christ, we could use any of the parables or the stories of the Bible of the great things that he did and the healing that he brought to people. But let's go to Luke 19, and we'll revisit a story that I'm sure everybody is familiar with. And this is the story of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And right there is a problem. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but couldn't. And, and skip on down, and, and it says uh, in verse 5, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste came down and they received him joyfully. And then in verse 8, it says, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. So what a wonderful story, an example of how Christ brings redemption into every situation he enters. Zacchaeus was a plain and simple thief. The tax collectors would overcollect and skim off a portion off the top to keep for themselves. And that was what Zacchaeus did. 
But even though he was a thief, even though he was guilty, even though he was despised by his community, he was nobody's friend. That didn't stop Jesus from entering into fellowship with him and from redeeming him. Someone that began the day as a sinner, as a thief, he ends the day giving half of what he had to the poor. And Jesus himself declares salvation has come to this house. There could be no greater end for Zacchaeus. And this tells us that no matter where you've been, no matter what your situation is, no matter how ugly the things are that Jesus may find in your house, He will come and He will redeem you. He's faithful to do that. Let's look at our redemption in Christ. In the Old Testament, redemption focused on material things and material freedom, but our redemption speaks to the condition of our heart. Jesus met all the qualifications of of a redeemer. He was a kinsman. He took upon himself the form of a man. He became like our brother. He let himself be tempted and tried in every way as us that he might redeem us. He was willing to redeem us. Stephen is taught, and we've learned that no one took the life of Christ. He willingly laid it down as a sacrifice. And finally, he was able to pay the price. Only one such as Jesus who had put himself into the darkest corners of humanity and had allowed himself to be tempted like you and I are and still was perfect would have been able to pay the price, and that was Jesus. There could be no other redeemer except for Christ. And what are we redeemed to? We are redeemed unto Christ. And God's plan since the very beginning has been to redeem us to himself. Go to Titus chapter 2. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, Zealous for good works. And that is you and I. We are redeemed from slavery to sin to fellowship and right standing with God. And this is our justification that Christ's sacrifice has made full payment for our sins. We're redeemed to be a part of the church. We're redeemed to be the hands and feet of Jesus, both to other believers and to the community around us. Now, being redeemed by Christ and being redeemed to Christ, it's important that we understand that the freedom that we have and we enjoy is in Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin. We serve now our Redeemer, who's Jesus, the rightful Lord and authority for our life. We are not redeemed to serve ourselves, but we serve Him that redeemed us. We serve the Lord with gladness, trusting that His plan is perfect for us. You know, we're often tempted, even after we've been redeemed, and we're walking with God, and we're living in fellowship with God, we're often tempted to follow our own desires and our own ambitions. But this always ends up the same. It's a trap. And before long, we're back into bondage. We're back into the slavery of sin from which we had been redeemed. And this happens over and over again. 
And it's any time we allow something other than Christ to become the main focus in our life and the desire of our heart. And it can be anything. It can be from big things to little things. Anything can come in, take our attention off of Christ and put it onto something else, and it leads us right back into bondage. Now, Paul says that we've now become slaves of righteousness, and we should yield our bodies to be used for righteousness unto holiness, which is to be set apart for the purpose of Christ and the purpose of our Redeemer. So our pursuits in life change from our selfish ambitions to serving Christ and serving others. And this is what we saw in our story. Ruth left her homeland, her family, everything she was accustomed to behind, knowing she would never go back. And we must also abandon and leave behind anything that exalts itself over Christ in our life. You know, when we see redemption in the Bible, it follows a denial of self and an obedience to God. But the good news is Jesus doesn't (laughs) redeem us and then leave us to keep ourselves. We're kept by the power of God. He gives us His Spirit in us to keep us. He keeps us by His power. We yield to Him and allow Him to do the work, but He will do it. He will do it. He will redeem you. So I'm almost through. But in closing tonight, I just want to encourage you and remind you that the redemption that Jesus brings to your life will ultimately end with you being in eternal fellowship in heaven with Jesus. If we make mistakes along the way, which we all do, all of us, every single one of us, we make mistakes along the way, we fall into sin. If we repent, He's faithful to redeem us. God remembers His covenant. We're now under the new covenant with His Son. Oh, and God is faithful to that covenant. He sees His Son, and He won't ever turn His back on His Son. Go to John chapter 6, and we'll end end here. Go to John chapter 6, look at verse 37. This is Jesus talking. He's talking about Him being the bread of life. And he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. There's the obedient Redeemer. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. And I will raise Him up at the last day. If you come to Him, you will not be cast out. He will redeem you. The purpose of your life is to be redeemed unto Christ. And at the last day, our redemption will be complete. What was sown in corruption will be raised in incorruption. What was sown in weakness will be raised in power. And the Bible tells us, so shall we ever be with the Lord. You know, if, if redemption is available, and it's available here tonight, and, and if, you're already, if you're redeemed and you're walking with God, consider, do you bring redemption into the situations you enter, to, you enter into as Christ did? When Christ went into any situation, wherever there was a problem, He brought solutions. He healed. He provided. He 
He, he solved the issues that people have. He came for the good of people. When you and I as Christians enter situations where there's conflict, where there's strife, where there's trouble, whether it's on our jobs, whether it's in our homes, so many different, in the church, so many different places, do we bring redemption as Jesus did? Do we bring solutions? Do we bring healing to those situations? 